Welcome to a pivotal moment in tennis history, a moment we are living and witnessing right now. Today, we stand on the brink of a revolution, not just in how the game is played, but how it's understood. Five years ago, when we embarked on this project, we anticipated changes, but what's unfolding is far more dramatic and more powerful than we ever imagined. Gone are the days of solely relying on impressionistic methods and the opinions of tennis gurus. We are now in an era where every shot, every point, and every strategic decision is transformed by the unyielding power of data analytics. This isn't just a change, it's a seismic shift that is redefining the very essence of tennis as we know it. As we experience these monumental changes firsthand, we invite you to join us on this groundbreaking journey. Together, let's discover how data analytics is not just influencing, but revolutionizing the world of tennis. So the Arts of Winning is brought to you by Sterling Strother and Dan Travis. This podcast is dedicated to shedding light on the new era of tennis. It looks at the completely new areas and realms of possibility that this era presents us with. Primarily, we examine the battles that will be fought as the player develops competitive intelligence. We ask you to subscribe to the podcast, both on the channels, Apple, Spotify, and Amazon, and subscribe directly to us by visiting www.artofwinningtennis.com. We can help you negotiate your way around this tremendously exciting new era in tennis. The way we improve as tennis competitors, it's about to change completely. The process is already well underway. This change is going to sweep aside traditional tennis culture and the limits it places on developing competitive intelligence. We examined in the previous episode how tennis data analytics is playing a key role in this concept change. We looked at the generalizations and the subjective and impressionistic weaknesses of traditional tennis. We discussed the radically different approach of strong problem framing. In today's episode, we're going to look at how tennis data analytics works. In particular, we will examine the categories, the specific way the data is organized. We will discuss why the categories came into being, how they were developed, how they work, why they are so powerful, and what is happening now and what may happen in the future for tennis data analytics. Sterling, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Dan. Before we jump straight in, it's often said about data analytics that, look, you know, isn't this a little bit dry sometimes for people? I'm not, I, I, I'm always speaking to people, obviously, on the court about, about doing this. And their, their initial reaction before they start to understand what we're going to be talking about today is, look, I'm not, I'm not an advanced player. You know, shouldn't I be doing something else other than analyzing, doing doing the data? And really, also this this point is, it doesn't sound that exciting, does it? Data analytics categories, and that's a shame. That's a shame because I think we know how absolutely groundbreaking this is. It's just it's just a totally different um, a totally different thing. What would you say say to a tennis player? right now who might need convincing about how good how good this is how would you what would you do i know i'm springing that on you before we we start (laughs) we're going to what we're talking about but i I mean first of all have you experienced that sterling i've experienced more of a mystery people don't just know they don't know about analytics and they don't know how to connect knowing about their data and how does that Mm -hmm. connect to how to actually rehearse or practice on the court. And so I think the first thing I would do is definitely basically map one of their matches and then show them the data and then show them how it connects with what they need to rehearse on the practice court. Mm -hmm. So it's got to be seen, hasn't it? 
it's got to be experienced. It, it does. It's otherwise it's this mystery. It's 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 fairly new as we're going to talk about today. So, mm-hmm. so on that basis, what I want to do is I want to ask you two questions about the current use of data analytics. One, how's t- tennis data been used up until this point in time? And two, where has it been used? So let's tackle the where first. That's pretty easy. Mainly tennis data is used at the professional and the U.S. college levels. It's also sparingly being used at the high school levels in the U.S., as well as junior competitive play, and that could be worldwide. Sort of the the history of like when, when did this all come into action for tennis, right? So baseball was actually the first sport to use it back in 1964. That was the first sort of sightings of sports analytics. And so so tennis data analytics from 1991 to 2012, very primitive. Then in 2015, Rally Link appeared on in professional tournament data, right? So analysis of that data revealed much shorter rally links than expected. And this statistic was responsible for driving the curiosity yeah. to discover why this might be occurring, right? So quickly, the timeline. For, so from 1991 to 2002, it was very primitive. It was hard to find tennis data. From 2002 to 2015, it was improving. But when 2015 hit, until now, 2023 is where our sport has sort of advanced with the data analytics. And so in 2015, this is very important, at the Australian Open, for the very first time, IBM displayed some data that was all about rally, rally link, right? So historically, we've looked at forehand winners, serve percentages, we've counted double faults and aces, but We've always stood on the side of the court and we've seen these shorter rallies and we've seen mm-hmm. long rallies and we've seen extra long rallies, but we've never, ever contemplated the idea of counting and recording rally link and saying, for example, that was a five-shot rally. So for years, the unforced error has been elevated to such a status in tennis that it's kind of, kind of makes us think that short rallies are really full of unforced errors. And that short rallies shouldn't happen, and that long rallies are just much better. And and that's we found that that's actually not necessarily the case. That short rallies are not filled with all unforced errors. And so, but for the first time in 2015, and I believe that was January of 2015, because that's when the Australian Open, IBM's first started counting the rally link, and then they actually separated on screen. Zero to four shots, five to eight shots, and nine plus. And so at the end of the tournament, they displayed this data of 70% of the points ended zero to four for the Mm -hmm. tournament, and 20% ended five to eight shots, and 10% ended nine plus shots. So for me, my story is that I discovered tennis data four years prior to 2015 in the Australian Open in 2011. And so these events that occurred. This was way prior to this, right? So I noticed these frequently short rally points while I was coaching a very prominent high school tennis team in Cary, North Carolina, which is my hometown. And so once I noticed rally length of points were super short on average, I began this journey of discovering how and why the data was so important to transform this player development. Because, And it it was interesting is I thought I was late to the party. I thought everyone knew this. I thought this was something that I had sort of seen for the first time right in front of my eyes, but I didn't realize that I was one of the first to really look at the data and categorize it. So when um, I said a little, I talked a little bit about this in the first podcast, I was working on point rally data and other data metrics that came out of point rally link. That's the first thing I noticed, how many shots are successfully landing in the court for each point. And I was doing this from September 2011 until October 2014 before I even ever heard of Craig O'Shaughnessy and Brain Game Tennis, who is now a good friend. So I met up with him in February of 2015. And now what's really interesting about our meeting, we were down at PTR at Hilton Head, the the PTR coaching symposium. And what was interesting is that 
I didn't even watch the 2015 Australian Open, which was in January before I met Craig a month later. So I had no idea what IBM had displayed on the screen for the tournament as far as data analytics for the tournament, because I did not watch that tournament. Mm -hmm. And so I believe that's why when we, I started talking to Craig about the numbers that I'd found in junior tennis, and I'd been doing this for four years, and his, he was just amazed, and he was pretty shocked at how and when I discovered RallyLink, because he even asked me, how did you divide it up zero to four or five to eight? And I said, well, I was just looking at all the numbers, and that's just the way everything started to fall. And for the first time, he realized I didn't know what IBM was doing. So from there, what happened was Craig, after a meeting at, the P- at Hilton Head in February 2015, he flew to North Carolina the next month and interviewed me about junior and high school tennis data analytics. And this was in my hometown here in Cary, North Carolina. So from there, we had dinner that evening. And, he, and I asked him, I said, what, sh- what do you think I should do, Craig, with all this data and all this time I've spent the last four years analyzing this and changing the pole, the, the way the practice court looks? And this is what the whole program was about that he released on Brain Game Tennis for me. So he looked at me and he said, Sterling, if I were you, I'd go all in. And so that's when I went, okay, I'm all in on this. I've got to figure this out. So anyway, that's when I, I'd already created some of the games that we've created. We've coined them as the competitive intelligence games here at the Art of Winning. And so that's kind of the hist- my history of discovering tennis data, the overall history of tennis data. So at the Art of Winning, you know, we categorize the events into unique charts and graphs to assist the player and coach towards distinguishing what's the most important. And so this is what we're going to talk about today, these categories. And they've been developing with me since 2011. So we've spent a lot of time and a lot of effort into digging into what, how do you really use data analytics to help you improve your game and win more points. So that's that's really the history of when and where. It seems to me, from what you've been saying, that data has been the preserve of the tour and of the US college system. So in the UK, for example, we have little ATP action and there's zero college and you have no data. Yep. Then what you have done since 2011, is to make tennis data analytics universal. And that's the really interesting point from where we're sitting here. Because it, is, it's, it was the preserve. You know, that's, where, that's where data's kind of, the, where there's a requirement for data is going to be on the ATP tour and, and, and the college. Okay? So with where there's demand is going to exist, I think. And I think that's true to say certainly with the TDA. But Again, so what you've done is managed to, you know, you make the point, it's our first of the answer winning principles, isn't it? Yep. It's 70-20-10. So 70% of the points are over by the fourth shot, by or on the fourth shot. And the important part of that first principle that people miss, because they get excited by the first part, but the second part says that that is true of your ATP tour player all the way down to your club player. That's a universal. That's the key difference here with what you have discovered from from what I'm seeing. So everyone can use it to analyze matches because the principles are the same. Yes. Would you say that that's an accurate summary? Yes. I think that's the one thing that Craig was so shocked about in our meeting in in March, in February of 2015 is he said, what are the, what are the average rallies for girls between the ages of, you know, 12 and 18 and boys. And I was just spitting out the numbers and he was just like, almost just, he was just taken back. Like, wow, this is amazing how close, closely related the data we are discovering on the pro tour versus junior tennis. And we talked about the reasons why and the reasons why differ, but the numbers still remain the same. Average 60 to 70% of all points played in the tennis match, no matter what level you're at, amateur, men's, women's tennis on the amateur level versus pros and then on the junior tennis is zero to four shots, 
right? That's where it lands, zero to 60 to 70% of the time. And so this was this was actually a, a really break, a groundbreaking discovery between Craig and I with because he's operating at that level and he was on the prep pre- professional tour. And then I'm operating on the junior level. And so um it was fascinating. It really was the conversation to sort of that was the catalyst of how I got started on my end. And then we still communicate even to this day about things. And then we're discovering new things as we go, especially here at the Art of Winning, because we're, we're diving deep. So there, I think, again, it would be accurate to, then to say that there's two eras in tennis data analytics, and that's pre-2015 20, yep. um, and post, post-2015. Um, I wanted to ask you about the maybe the shortcomings uh, yes. of the pre-2015 tennis data analytics. And to me, there seems to be there seems to be two problems. The first is that the data itself is not that good and it's perhaps being used in the wrong way. And second, the absence of data means that there's a missed opportunity for players to develop a different and better quality competitive intelligence. How do both of those features uh, relate to each other? Well, I would say that it all depends on what kind of data that you're compiling and then you're comparing in order to analyze and draw conclusions as to how you Mm. might play a better next match, right? I would say that any data collected is most useful when it can create a storyboard of play. In other words, paint a clear picture of your strengths and weaknesses as well as your opponent's and what actually is happening in the match and what your distorted perception is when you don't have data. So the absence of data can continue to keep a player just blind to this distorted, these distorted perceptions of how the match actually unfolded. And so without the knowledge of particular data, a player's left to guess and assume when and where and why the match was won or lost. And so the objective to me is to identify key data, data categories that give a player the most relevant information about the way they will manage the match from point Mm -hmm. to point and then from game to game. So it's point to point and then game to game. And so that's to me how you've got to have meaningful statistical categories. Like I said in the first podcast, first serve percentage has always been a category sort of when we talk about that traditional tennis culture has that it comes from that, right? How, how many first serves are you getting in? But that doesn't really tell me a whole lot about maybe how I won or lost the point. A better percentage would be first percentage points won. How many times when I got a first serve in, did I win the point? And then same with second serves. Um, same with returns, right? Like how many second serve returns did I play and I actually won the point? And what we're finding is that that P, that data, second serve points returned, how many points did I win the point? That's an important piece of data. And the numbers typically, if you return, if you win about 60% of second serve points against your opponent, you have a really good chance of winning, of breaking serve. And so that 60% of the time is kind of that magic number. Yes. Um, it doesn't mean it's, it's, ironclad but it but it does over time that's what the data that has been mined is telling us and so we'll talk to our junior players and say hey when you get a second serve you want to balance the the aggressiveness of your return to how you set up the the return so that you can put yourself in the best position to hit a really strong r1 the first shot after the return and so the data helps us organize how we're thinking about how, wh- the way we're going to play the point. And there's always risk reward in any situation. So the more aggressive you are, the more reward. But yet at the same time, there's greater risk for being too aggressive. So that's what we're doing here at the Art of Winning. And I think what I'd like now to do is to introduce these categories as the specifically the four categories that we use, which are PRL, which is point rally length, momentum, first strike combination, and first strike pattern. So 
uh, the categories as a whole, here's my definition of the categories. The categories organize data so that you can pinpoint specific tendencies in the match that has been played. Second, the categories work together in such a way as to provide a storyboard of play. Both of these are incredibly powerful tools and unlike anything we've seen before in tennis. So PRL, we want to look at each one of these in turn. So we're going to start with PRL. I want you to explain in detail what PRL is and how it helps us build the story, the storyboard of play. So PRL is point rallying. Those, that is the number of successful shots that land in the court. So you will not count the last shot that goes, that is an error. Maybe it goes out long, deep, or sorry, deep, wide, or in the net. So you will not count the last shot. So successful shots that land in the court. It is absolutely the most important data statistic. And that's why it's first. It is interesting that IBM displayed that one first. That was the new one that was displayed. So the reason why is without knowing the point rally length of each point and how it flows from yes. one point to the next, a player is left to guess how many shots they are playing in their opponent's court on each point consistently throughout the match. And so when you don't know this and you don't recognize this, it leads to countless subjective opinions and conclusions as to how the point was won or lost and how the game was won or lost and so on. And so there's an emotionally charged, distorted perception of how this went down, how you lost, won or lost each point or the game. Because you you don't know the point rally length, or you don't have or not aware of it. So the point rally length is first affected by the psychological state of a player, and then second, it's affected by the technical and movement state of a player. So what I mean by this is that what a player sees in front of them will determine what type of shot to play again. So movement is determined by what a player looks at immediately after they hit the ball and look up. So. Decisions about what type of shot selected to play is determined before a player even sees what type of shot their opponent plays. So, right. So, like, if you understand the point rally length, you understand that most points end on four shots or less. So, the average is around three. If you're playing your first strike sequence, you're looking up to see what's coming next. And so, you're able to make a better decision because you understand that the point. It's very possible the point could end right in the first strike stage. So you're you're able to plan better. You're able to have a more stable mindset by knowing the PRL. And so it's really the first way to begin asking questions about the decision making process of the player. And so it's it's the it's the statistic that begins the discovery process of becoming more competitively intelligent. And that's why it's first. That's why it's first. Okay, because I was yeah I was kind. Of- to ask you that. So what I'd like to do then is to move from PRL onto momentum and the momentum score. And this is a huge subject in itself, momentum. Okay. And one we will be looking at as a podcast, no doubt several podcasts, um, as a topic in its own right. Can you explain what momentum scoring is, Sterling? And how does momentum scoring work with PRL? So we can start that first question. What actually is the momentum score? Momentum scoring is an expression that I created as a way to quantify momentum shifts within a game. And Mm -hmm. so the momentum score is a radically different, it's radically different than the traditional game score in tennis, right? It's actually the real score. And what I mean by that is, It's the only score that explains exactly the margin of separation between you and your opponent. And like I said in the first podcast, the game score is diabolically deceptive because it is an inflated score that does not reveal the actual margin of separation between you and your opponent. If I'm up 30 love, that does not give me an accurate assessment or of the separation, the amount of separation I have, because it's inflated 30 to even love. What is love? I mean, it's 
You know, it's crazy, right? We talked about the words, numerical and grammatical. Don't get, don't get into the question, what is yeah, love? So, we'll yes. be here for a long time. <laughs> so the momentum, so, so in other words, the momentum score is never tied. So you're either up plus one mm. or, or down minus one, or you're either plus two or minus two or plus three, minus three. And so the art of winning data analytical reports stop at three. Because that's yes. all you need to score in consecutive points to win a game in tennis, right? That's the max. So once a game is complete, the momentum score resets to zero. And so 30 all, it appears to be tied. Well, that's why it's deceptive because you've got to, you've got to configure how many points have I consecutively, lo- consecutively lost or won. And 30 all does not reveal that just by saying I'm up, I'm up 30 all. Now you have to think through it, obviously, but that's the point of the momentum scores to track the momentum score first. And that gives you the game score. The point rally link actually tells you exactly what the momentum score is. So that's the beauty of tracking PRL first. It gives you the other critical data at one time. So the momentum score and the PRL work together to tell a story of how well you are sustaining the momentum of the game and whether you are blocking the momentum of your opponent. If you think about the momentum shifts quantitatively, point to point, you'll be able to stabilize your decision-making. And this increases the probability of winning the next point. And so the story, this this is what becomes the storyboard of play. So if you think about the word storyboard, it literally means a story written on a board. For example, like a chalkboard or a whiteboard we use to display whatever is happening in real time. And so the PRL and the momentum score display this storyboard for a player in real time, what is actually happening in the game. What's the rally length? What's the momentum score? Versus guessing or emotionally reacting to what is occurring within a game in real time. So so before when we train our players here at the Art of Winning, before they play the next point, they understand, oh, the last point ended here, zero to four or five to eight or plus nine. So they know going into the next point, okay, this point, you know, if it was an extended rally, the last point, most 90% of the time, it's a zero to four rally the next point. We just know that by the data. And so our players know that. So they go, okay, wait a minute. What's my momentum score? Okay, I'm plus one. Okay, now I make a decision based on plus one. And I know the rally length is possibly going to be shorter because my last point was longer. And so this, these are the things that we can train on a daily basis and rehearse. And we still get new data every day. We either get data that confirms what we already know, or maybe we get an outlier of data. And then we talk about what happened there. And so, but the PRL and the momentum score works hand in hand, right? The PRL gives you the momentum score. If I'm serving and it's a five-shot rally, then that means I won the point. So now I'm up plus one. If I'm serving and it was a four-shot rally, I lost the point. Now I'm minus two or minus one, right? And so that's how they work together. Okay. Yeah. I mean, look, that's a great explanation and it's a great summary, thank you, of a very difficult subject. But it's important that I think that we at least introduce people to the concept of uh, momentum in this this podcast, which is why it's being introduced here in the categories in this second episode. So I really do like the way you, you also describe the storyboard literally being on a board. And that's something that we're, we're going to come to because you are really, you know, we're writing it down. We encourage people to write it down by hand for a good reason, because it's this hand eye and reading of the data um, is very, you know, it's very important. Can we turn, Sterling, to first strike com- combination? Sure, yes. Let's talk about first strike combination. So the first strike term, mm-hmm. it refers to zero to four stage of the point. Yes. It's, it's been interpreted as an aggressive term that when I sh- first strike, I strike first or I be aggressive, I be offensive. But actually that's taken a bit out of context. When we talk about the first strike stage of a point, we're talking about that part of the point that's zero to four. And so there's a sequence and then there's a combination. So the sequences are S and S1, R and R1, 
that tells you the first four shots there. But the combination is, let's say for the serve, it's displayed as the type of serve that's hit, whether it be a kick serve, a flat serve, or slice serve, and then what type of shot follows a serve, the S1. Mm Yeah, And that typically is a forehand or a backhand ground stroke. It could possibly be a forehand or backhand volley if you're serving and volleying, or it could be a swing volley or, or smash. But typically, uh, first strike combinations on the S and S1 sequence are the type of serve and the type of ground stroke or volley that you hit forehand or backhand. Now, the first strike combination for re- the return it's also the two-shot combination yes. of a forehand-forehand, a forehand-backhand, a backhand-forehand, or a backhand-backhand. And so those two shots. The On the R1, it could be a volley as well. You could return in volley. We don't see that too often. So the combination you play can tell a story about the decision you made. For example, when the momentum score was minus one and the PRL for that point that you played at minus one was seven shots. And so knowing the first strike combination, the PRA on the momentum score of a particular point will allow you to analyze how these three categories combined can help you decide whether you made a great decision mm-hmm. or lead you to how you need to make maybe a better decision next time in the future point. So when I'm returning, if I'm returning from the, the deuce court, and I'm hitting a backhand return because the server forces me to hit a backhand return. Do can I place that backhand return to a place into my opponent's court where they most likely give me a forehand next? And so that's yes. how we, we're looking at that combination working, you know, how we want to increase our probability of winning the point. So that's the okay. combination. Okay, that's uh, yeah, that's that's the combination itself. So in the same vein, how does it um how, how does it relate to the other two categories? Well, it, it, it does in a sense where you understand where, where you are in the momentum score, say I'm minus one, and let's say I'm returning from ad court. What two-shot combination am I looking to play? Well, I'm probably looking to play more forehands beginning the point. So I'm going to try to play a forehand return if I can, but I'm definitely going to try to place my return in a way where I play another forehand for my R1. It just gives me a better chance of winning the point because most players are more proficient or stronger on their forehand side than their backhand. Now, if they happen to be really strong on their backhand and they prefer their backhand, maybe that player wants to, they prefer a backhand as an R1. Okay, so it kind of depends on the player there. But typically, overall, You'd, you'd like to see yourself play more forehands at the beginning of the point. And the momentum score, knowing that, is going to help you uh, negotiate your position as far as trying to either stop the momentum of your opponent by winning one point and going from minus one to plus one, or maybe you're at plus one and you're trying to win two points in a row. Okay? So that's how it relates. Yeah, <laughs> yeah good. Yeah, again, so yeah, thank you. For that, I want to, if it's okay, then look at our fourth category, which is the first strike pattern. What is the first strike pattern? The first strike pattern is the first two shots, first strike, that you play. And it's displayed as where you the ball actually goes in your opponent's court. So, for example, when you're serving, there are serve positions in the serve boxes. And so we talk about this more extensively in the book. Uh, the art of winning, the art of winning tennis. So the deuce and add courts, right? You have deuce, that would be the wide serve is P1, and then P2, P3, and P4 is the T serve. So you have four equal sections there. And then you have on the add court, you have five, P5 is the T serve, P6, P7, and then P8 is the wide serve to the add court. And so you have four equal sections for the serve. So where did the serve go? Which position did your serve land uh, one through eight? And so the S1, the first shot after the serve is played into one of the four zones of the backcourt. And those are divided A, B, C, D equally. And so the deuce court makes up zone A and B and the ad court makes up zone C and D. And so A and D are the corners, the back corners of the court and B and C are the, is the makes up the middle third of the court. 
And so the first, the serve first strike pattern would be displayed, for example, as 1A. I played my serve to position one from deuce court. And then my S1, I played back into zone A. Or maybe 4D, I played my serve into position four and I hit my S1 into D. And so what's really interesting is there are actually 16 first strike patterns for the serve on the do side. And then there are 16 first strike patterns on the ad court. So on the ad court, the pattern would be displayed as 5A or 7C. And so total, there are 32 first strike patterns that can be accessed by a player at any time while they're serving. And I've always driven home the point because we talk, players say, oh, you know, I don't really know what's coming. Anything could come at me. No, one of the 32 patterns are coming toward you. And it depends on which side you're on so you can narrow it down. So there are distinct patterns that players are their favorite. And then there are patterns that they struggle with. And so if I'm working with a player, sometimes they'll struggle with maybe a 5D, right? T-serve from the ad and then hit the next shot to D. And so maybe we rehearse that. Maybe we define why we're rehearsing that. And so when you're, let's say a player's returning, so their first strike pattern is going to be just the zones of the court, right? So A, B, C, D. So if they're returning from deuce, they could have a pattern called like AC. So they hit the return to A, they hit their R1 to C. On the add, they could go CD. They could hit their return to C and then hit their R1 to D. And so that's how the first strike patterns for the return sequences line up. Thank you. That's not an easy job to explain the categories. And I think, Sterling, thank you that you, you, you did that really well. Um, and it's also helped clarify again where what these categories are, because then we can look at then how this actually makes up the storyboard of play that you've already alluded to. So how do you actually record the data? How do you physically record the data? Well, there are several ways. The easiest way is is pen and paper, right? Mm-hmm. You can just you can actually use graph paper if you like to sort of keep the numbers you know evenly spaced. I did that at the very beginning, back in 2011. Yes. And there are, there are digital ways you can record it. We are um, actually re-engineering our app here at, the, at uh, the Art of Winning called Tennis Map Play. And so I would say the first way to record data, would the best way is pen and paper. I there completely agree with you because I've been a, a, a student of yours in this process. And... In my experience, I've taught players and coaches how to, how to start tracking this data as well. And the pen and paper are very important, I think, because people kind of want to jump into doing it as quickly as possible. But you need to be able to familiarize yourself with it. There is, there is something to the act of writing it down and seeing it on paper in that way that allows you to become better at it, I think. It's, it's built into the recording of the data and your your improvement and in your ability to do it. You know, is it's right. it's built into that recording process. I think is that is that true? Absolutely. And most most people that are skeptical at first about the the averages, when the points end, most uh, when they start actually recording a match from beginning to end, and then they look at back at all the numbers. They're like, oh my gosh, this is, it's a, it's almost like it's a revelation to them. Actually, they didn't realize that how many threes they're writing down, how many twos they're writing down, how many ones they're writing down. And that adds up over time. And so writing it down is a very powerful process for anyone that is recording data for the first time or even for the hundredth time. And you mentioned you mentioned also the app. What what stage are we at with the app? Because we're being very careful with with its redevelopment, and because I mean it's it's testament to the work that you've done. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I released the app. To updating that app. Yes, yeah, so I first released the app in 2017, and we had a lot of parents test it. I tested it quite a bit. I actually love the app the way we designed it because it was much easier to 
to just punch in a number like a keypad, right? And the things that we're re-engineering are the new charts and graphs and the new mm-hmm. data that we found since 2017 that is relevant, that really can tell a powerful story to the player. I have to, I have to say this. You've been working with a player um, that's on the Junior World Tour, and, and you showed me a match the other day. And it was fascinating because she actually won the majority of the zero to four shot rallies, but she lost the set. And it's probably the first time that I've actually seen that happen. And you were quite perplexed. How could this happen? And I was, I was, oh, yeah. You were like, what in the world? And immediately when I saw that, my, because I've been working on this so long, and one of the new data metrics that I found is you look at the last two points of every game. And when I went to look at the last two points of every game she played in that set, it was quite interesting. Yes, she won the majority of 0-4 rally links in points for the set, but the either one or both of the last two points, at least one of the last two points she played in every game was 0-4, to four, and she lost every single one of those points. And so... The other ones were in five to eight, and she lost about 80% of those. And so when it came down to it, yes, she won zero to four overall in the set, but on the last two points of every game, she lost 100% of the zero to four rally links. And that was the difference in winning, winning or losing the set in a close manner, and because it was a close set. So these are the types of little nuggets that we're starting to find because we're, we had the original PRL and we, we started down this road and now we're beginning to pick apart where the, where the real magic is. And so the Tennis Map Play app is going to show these types of metrics. It's to me, it's the only app that is actually out there. It's not actually out there now, but it's the only app that's actually going to do this. Unless someone is listening to me and they're in the tech world and they go out and, you know, do it themselves, it's going to be the first app to show metrics, data analytics that has really never been seen before. And that's all because I want to see data as a coach that that is meaningful, that I can actually create a game out of to help a player understand where they are actually in the score and and what kind of patterns would be most effective to use in starting and beginning the next point. That's fascinating and also quite exciting. Thank you. I mean, I know this um, 2024, it's going to be very interesting. I think it's going to be the most interesting so far in the post-2015 era of tennis data analytics. And for that reason, I think. So look, we've starting, we've recorded a match. There it is. We've got a match worth, a match's worth of data on that sheet mm. there. What do we do next? Well, the first step is you've got to divide up all the points into the three categories, zero to four, five to eight, nine plus. Okay. So and, you, and, uh, sorry, you just used the word categories there. That might be a little bit confusing. What you mean sorry, is the... Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Sorry. I didn't mean sorry. to say that. It's <laughs> you divide it up into the three phases or sections of a point. So you have first strike, which is zero to four, patterns of play, which is five to eight shots, and then nine plus shots is extended rally. So those are the three phases of a point. You have the beginning of the point, first strike. You have the sort of the where patterns begin, quarter to middle of the point, if you will, five to eight shots, and then you have the the end of the point. But what's fascinating about this is you're going to find that most points end in the first strike phase. They don't actually go to nine plus. So, so the first thing I do, Sterling, sorry, because it's um, it's uh, <laughs> something I'm quite close to, right? like right now I can see one in front of me. The first thing I'm doing is I'm counting the number of points that were played. Well, yes. I mean, obviously that would be that would be something you could do. The first thing I always used to do before I even counted the number of points is at first I used to circle all the zero through four shots, but I figured out I was circling like way too many. So I just circle, yeah. all the, I'll circle all the nine plus points and I get that number. 
And then I go back and circle all the five to eight points and I get that number. And then whatever's left is first strike. And then I add those three numbers together and that's how I get the total number of points. Yay. Good. And that way you've done the job. You've done the job. You're simultaneously doing that same job. But that's what you're doing. Effectively, you're saying what we want to do is end up with a percentage of points one. How many points were played in the first strike, for example? Let's say it's a 70-point set and say 40 of those 70 are first strikes. Yeah, four out of seven. So we then go all well, the percentage in a first strike on that is about 65%. Yeah. Yep. The next will probably be around 20, yeah, 65, yeah, 25, and then 10% for the final nine plus that's the section of the rally. Yeah. So it's, yes, it's, it's, it's split roughly there. Then we want to determine how our player got the, what was their winning percentage in the first strike? So did they win 60% of the first strike battle? 70%? Yes. Did they lose, you know, wh- whatever it is? We need that right. We need that percentage. And we can determine that with tennis data analytics because of point rally length. Yes. That's the biggest, that's the first statistic you want to gather is, did my player win the majority of the first strike points? And how many, what was the percentage and patterns of play and, and plus nine extended rally? Okay. So that's definitely the first thing you want to you want to. And that alone is like, that's... Um, a stop moment for most people. They're like, oh my God, oh, oh. just looking at that. It it's is a shock of seeing how short points are. First of all, it's a shock. <laughs> There's nowhere around it. It really attacks the whole consistency argument. I need to be more consistent. Oh yes, you do need to be more consistent. You need to be more consistent on your first two shots that you play. If you're losing the first strike battle, that means you're, you're missing you're making an error on one of the first two shots you play. If you're losing the first strike battle, that's exactly what that's saying. And so you need to go to the practice court and you need to practice and rehearse patterns, first strike patterns and first strike combinations. What we just talked about, that's the solution to becoming more consistent in first strike, in the first strike phase of the point. And that's that's never discovered without data. Only data no. can help you discover that fact of where, when you're actually losing the point and how to define what does consistency mean for you as a player? There are obviously lots of steps to this. That's the main one. That's our first one. And I think for the sake of brevity, because we are, we are coming up, coming up to the hour, we, we can say, we can say to our, our listeners, you know, get in touch with us. We can help you with this. We're launching the course in January where we can take you through the step-by-step. There are examples you can download. If you go to the website, theartofwinning.com, there are resources there that you have immediate access to. Uh, We can help you with this journey. I would actually like to mention the next phase of the recording of data, which is the momentum map. Can Can you tell us about the momentum map? Yeah, the momentum map is really important. To um, It's one of the most important things I've found to really help a player understand how momentum is moving. And so the momentum score is going to tell you that. And you'll want to add up all the momentum points that you scored. So in other words, a momentum point is when you win two points in a row consecutively. That's called a momentum point. When you win three points in a row, that's called a conversion point. So I'll look at how many momentum points did my player win in the set and how many momentum points did my opponent win in the set. That's going to tell me right there, that number is going to tell me exactly who won the match or who won the set and why. Right there. Bam. Yes, my opponent scored more momentum points than me. They won two points consecutively more times than I did. And 90% of the time, maybe even higher, the player that wins more momentum points will win the set and will win the match. If you win more conversion points, three points in a row, so say you win three points in a row eight times and your opponent does it four, you're definitely going to win that match. Like 97% chance you're going to win that match. And so this is a motivation for you to learn how to win 
two points in a row and try to win three points in a row, which is difficult, can be done, but it is much more difficult than winning two points in a row. And we call that here at the Art of Winning a momentum point. So that the momentum map is something that reveals those pieces of data. And it's extremely important for you to understand um, how, how much, how many times are you consistently winning momentum points and maybe picking up some conversion points in the set and then throughout the match. Okay. And boy, are we going to be returning to that topic of conversation in future podcasts. Okay. You've heard it here first, but that will, that's going to be something that we will be developing and hopefully working with you directly on your understanding of this, this concept. Sterling, that's been a fascinating and very welcome analysis of a, of a difficult subject to, to convey to people. You know, we, we're not doing this on the tennis court. We're doing it in this, this podcast. But I, I really hope that we've given people now some map, if you like, of this tennis data analytics and what the categories can do and why we think you should be using them and really how, how powerful it is. You know, it's, it, it is literally the game changer. But in order for you to become, start to use this powerful tool, we do have right now some products for you that you can, you can pick up. You've got to read the book, okay? There's no hiding place anymore. That book, get it done, start reading it. You're going to need to read it about four or five times. <laughs> it ain't easy, but it's, um, it's not easy for a reason because of the, the, you know, the, the level of detail in there is such that, as Sterling said at the beginning, as what Craig O'Shaughnessy said to you, Sterling, go all in. I think we've done that with the book. Absolutely. Um, yeah. You're going to need to read it at one point because your opponent, if your opponents get hold of it first, you know? I remember, when, I remember when we first started thinking about writing this book and I told you, I said, Dan, it's time to take the gloves off and tell it like it really is. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think it's, that's why I believe it's creating, it's going to create a revolution. It's going to help the game evolve into something much more interesting. So yeah, pick up the book. It's on Amazon and um, the art of winning tennis. Yeah, the free. Yeah, so we got we got three of the games, the competitive intelligence games uh, videos that are brilliant. You must get those too, and that's free. Okay, you've got to get the book. You've got to get this free the free download at the the art of winning tennis Okay, there you'll find it. Speak there in big letters. The online course is coming up in January. We're very, very excited about that. So you are really going to have a education in tennis data analytics and an immediate application. So that's that's going to transform your approach. I hope. So yeah, getting get you need to get in touch with us. We're, we're not we're not um, too difficult to get hold of on the internet. So yeah, please do that. Let's start the conversation. And we are also going. We also run our uncle programs our venues in North Carolina, North Carolina and um, in, in sunny Brighton in Sussex in the UK. So we're going to be doing that in, in the U- new year. So you can, you can come and visit us in our natural habitat. So yeah, thank you very much, Sterling. I can't wait for 2024 because next week we're going to be talking about the book. We're going to be launching that podcast next week. I don't think we're going to have much of a break actually. But we've got that one. We've we've got that one ready to go. So yeah, again, same time next Wednesday, we'll be looking at some of some of those uh, th- those topics uh, in in the book uh, in more detail. So thank you very much for listening, and thank you, Sterling. Thank you, Dan. Have a great day. Bye bye.